when you hear this message today, it'll be good that you understand some of this foundational stuff so that you can have it inside of you, us. And also when you're sharing the Lord with your friends, whether it's at home school (laughs) or if it's at school school or if it's in the park or wherever, that you can give them a rich and a deep understanding of what it means to know Jesus. All right, that said then, I was thinking it's two weeks ago, but it's three weeks ago because we had Ed and then Mike last week that I talked to you guys. And that, that conversation, I just want to refresh it because it's their precept upon precept, their building blocks. And what we're doing is we're preparing ourselves, the equipping of the saints for the works of the service of ministry, in this case now to build a foundation under us so that when we go out, we will be building a sound foundation under somebody who might actually come into a saving relationship with Jesus. So the last time I talked, it was about covenant. The gist of the message was to come to the place where we understand that relationship with God, to have a, well, I guess that wouldn't be like this, would it? That'd be relationship with each other. Relationship with God like this is based upon covenant. And and I I tried to demonstrate from um, Adam and Eve and then through Moses and the law and then through the new covenant in grace with Jesus that relationship is based upon covenant. And I asked the question, you know, do you agree with that? Now, I don't know if every single person answered yes, but trust me, relationship with God is based upon covenant. Then the next question or the next statement was that covenant in the, in the sense of having it, it to be what brings relationship with God has terms, like a contract would have terms. If this, then that. You want to buy my car? I want to sell my car. I want $1,000 for my car? You're going to have to give me $1,000. That's the terms of the sale. For me to sign the title over to you, you have to give me $1,000. You get the car and the title. Covenant with God has terms. I ended the, the message that Sunday with, have we come to the place where we agree that covenant, relationship with God is based upon covenant? People said yes. Have we come to the place where we agree and we understand that that covenant has terms that must be met? We said yes. I said, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? I think everybody said yes. Then I asked the question, what are the terms of the covenant, of the covenant that you agreed to by which your assumption of going to heaven was made. And I didn't ask anybody to answer that question, but that's a pretty um, telling question. How did you enter into a covenant with God if you didn't understand the terms of the covenant? What did you say yes to, right? It's important that we understand. And as we share the gospel, as we're commanded to share the gospel, we need to really understand what the terms of the covenant are and be able to share them with somebody because what we want to lead them to is a relationship with Christ not some kind of false confession that doesn't necessarily bring them to that place. Okay. Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Still, this wasn't, I don't think I used these scriptures last week, but I thought of them and I thought there, there'd be a nice review. Matthew seven thirteen and 14. This is Jesus speaking. It's towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. So, so this wide gate and this broad way, you only have to do one sin and you get in. It's so easy to get through the wide gate, so easy to walk on the broad way. It just requires one sin. And, and quite frankly, if I understand scriptures correctly, we were actually there before we started because of our father Adam's sin. We were born into his sin nature, into this sin nature. 
but it doesn't require much to get onto this path that leads to destruction. Jesus goes on and says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Think of that scripture as kind of like covenant in terms. There's this way that leads to life. To get on that way, you have to enter through a gate. A gate is restrictive, right? If a gate's closed, you can't get in. You can't get on the way till you can get through the gate. The gate is Jesus. He's the only way to life is Jesus. But there are terms to receiving Jesus in the way that he's offered so that we can be on the way to life. Think in terms of the gate, the uh, opening, or almost like this. This is probably a, a weird picture, but some of you youth will get it. Imagine your locker at school, right? And as weird as this sounds, Jesus is your locker, okay? The Bible says that if we're found in Christ Jesus, we're born again, that we're right with God and we're eternally in good shape, right? So we want to get in the locker, but the door won't open because there's a lock on the door. The the lock is like the gate. The door is kind of like the way. The combination is like the terms of the covenant. If you open the gate or the door of the locker by knowing the combination or the terms, then you can open the gate and you can be found in Christ Jesus, which in this case is your school locker, which is a, not a great picture, but you get the point, right? Okay. So then if both are true, relationship is by way of covenant, and covenant has terms then, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Next question, how do you know? Basically, what are the terms, right? And then this one you, you need to really get because I'm the guy speaking right now. And be it by my life experience, be it by how God wired me, be it how he wants to use me in the church, I don't know the reason. But I see the the legal aspect of covenant much more strongly than I see the love aspect of covenant. But covenant in this context is about love. It's absolutely about love. We were singing the song uh, in worship this morning. What were the words? Love came down and rescued me. Love came down and set me free. I started thinking about that. What other motivation could there be for Jesus, he's love in this case, that came down and rescued me, that came down and be tempted and tested in every way that every man, woman, or child could have ever been or would ever be tested, to come down knowing what the cost of being the sacrificial lamb of God was going to be to him personally and to still do it. Like, would there be some great master slave reward that might cause you to do that? I'm trying to think what besides love could motivate anybody to do that. And quite frankly, the end of my thought process is there is nothing short of the kind of love that God has for us that would cause him to send his son or Jesus himself to come and actually do that. So truly, love came down for the purpose of love. For satisfying love, love came down and set us free, right? Covenant is legal in that it has absolute requirements that have to be met in order for it to come into effect. But we've got to understand it's, it's a love-based covenant by the one who loved us first before we loved him. That, that it's, it's like a marriage covenant or, or, or it is actually a betrothal covenant. It's a covenant of betrothal between God and mankind. How do we get to that point? It's a loving covenant. It's like 
Teresa and I, we would make a, a marriage covenant, or any husband and wife to be would make a marriage covenant. Well, one of the covenants would be faithfulness. One of the parts of the covenant is faithfulness because you can't have that relationship outside of faithfulness. But it's a love relationship, but it has requirements for it to actually survive. Okay, so... what? One last thing I want to share about covenant, and then we'll move on. Uh-oh. Oh, here it is. Okay. Think of this. Now, I'm not going to talk about the terms of covenant today so much. That's next week. But you have covenant. Covenant. Covenant has terms. Uh-oh. Keith, I think you'll have to come help me. If you could just kind of hold this thing up for me. Thanks. Okay, let's do it so that you are a little bit more behind. Okay. It's the concept that you need to get anyway. Covenant has terms. So first term of covenant is uh, the confessed lordship. Confess is an important word here, as, as important as lordship. Confess lordship of Christ in our lives. The second is, I'll just call it trusting faith. Okay? Without these two things, we don't enter into covenant, saving grace covenant with God. But then you get into these other things. One of them might be treat others, you know, how, how you want them to treat you. Or you might get do not, and then you can fill in the blank. And you might get do, and then you can fill in the blank. You might get love your neighbor. Fill in the blank. These are commands of God but they're not terms of covenant. If they're not terms of covenant, then then what are they? They're characteristics of disciples. Oops. Remember, the objective is not convert. The objective is disciple. So here's the thing we have to be careful of, that there are terms that are required to enter into covenant with God. And there are things that are commands of Christians by God. But you have to be careful that if we start to take these things and we move them over here, we change covenants. This is a covenant of grace. As soon as we start saying these are required to be this, the covenant changes to this. And that's the tendency, and I think that's the influence that the enemy wants to get us. Always bring us out of grace, always bring us out of grace into law. But as soon as we start to say, okay, these two things, plus love my neighbor, because that's one of the two big commands, so that I can have this, then the covenant has changed from grace to law. That's what you see in Galatians. Paul says, who's bewitched you, Galatians? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. As soon as you start to add some of the law, you now become responsible to all of the law unto your salvation. 
we have to remember that the covenant has actual requirements. That's all it is. Those two right there. The rest fall out of the process of being and making disciples. And we have to be so careful that we don't take these things, which are absolutely, God really requires them of us, but not unto covenant. It's, that's where we get into problems with tithing. You don't tithe, all this kind of stuff. It's like, well, it's not a term of the covenant of grace. It might be a good thing to do. It might be a, a godly thing to do, but it's not a thing to do unto your salvation. That's just these, okay? Thanks, Keith. I might have you come up one more time. We'll just put it down then. Yeah, thanks. Yep, just lean it right up against there. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Remember, the the purpose of all of this conversation is so that our foundation is firm, that we can be confident when we're sharing the gospel with other people, and then that the foundation that starts to be put in place under them is actually firm. Amen? Amen. Okay. So before we talk about being saved, let's talk about not saved. Like, what, what does it mean to be not saved? If you're going to share the gospel with somebody, the assumption would be that they're not saved, right? All this conversation would be from God's perspective. God's the writer of the book. He might have used men to do it, but everything we have that teaches us and how we know about God, those things that can be affirmed and confirmed are only those things that we find in scriptures. So if somebody says, you know, I have this intimacy with the Holy Spirit and he's given me this revelation and it's contrary to scripture, you know what we call that? Mormon. (laughs) It's not true. If it can't be affirmed, confirmed in the scriptures it it, it might be a good thing but it ain't a doctrine and it ain't theology because he's given us the book the book was written by god he used men to do it okay the the point is that all of this is from his perspective if you're a person and you're about to come into a saving relationship with god you're not the center of the universe he is okay the first thing that a person should understand is that we are his creation Now, if somebody believes in evolution, does that mean they can't be saved? I don't know, probably not. But to have a right understanding to build a foundation, we need to explain to them that all this, Teresa said it today, everything that is, is, it only is because of Jesus. And the thing that she didn't mention from those scriptures is he's also the sustainer of everything that is. Think about that. Think about that all of the biology or the chemistry or whatever goes on in every cell of our bodies is sustained by Jesus. The wind blows, the rain falls, the snow comes, the trees grow, the sap flows. Everything is sustained. Anything that's life is sustained by Christ himself. That God created all that we have. That's a good thing for a person to understand if they're about to come into relationship with God. They have to have some sense for who God is. Like what's his character like? The creator and sustainer of everything that is. That he's loving, that he's merciful, and that he's just. Because people have been conditioned, and and even more so now than ever before, that he's not a good God. That that he, if anything in the world bad happens, it's because he's a bad God, if he's any God at all. And and we have to tell people that you can understand in the face of all of the bad stuff that you see that he's an awesome and a perfect and a loving God. You may not get it today in this conversation, but you need to just be told. You need to understand his nature and his character is awesome and it's love. 
people need to understand that they're separated from God. They need to understand about sin, like how Adam and Eve, God placed them in the garden and he gave them everything that they would need. There was a covenant. What was the covenant? One, one thing, only keep one rule. Don't eat from that particular tree in the center of the garden. They broke covenant. Out of the garden they went. I'm not praying, I forgot my train of thought. <laughs> oh, understand that they're separated. Adam and Eve separated themselves by God. They did it by their sin. They did it by their choice. It wasn't because God was mean. It wasn't because God wasn't loving. It wasn't because he wanted the garden all to himself. It was because there was terms and they chose themselves over they chose God. They did it. And, and the person has to understand that they're responsible, that God's not responsible, right? There, there would be no need for God to forgive my sins if I hadn't sinned. If, if Keith punches me in the face and a sin has been committed, I don't ask him to forgive me. I didn't do anything. He needs forgiveness. Now, maybe I should use me as the bad guy because you, you would never punch me in the face. The point is, if you don't have a sense for guilt then you can't go further. How can you ask for a savior if you have no sense that you need one? It's important to understand that that God is perfect. He's righteous and he's holy and he's sovereign and he's love. And so were we, mankind, at the beginning. Adam and Eve were holy as he was holy. They were righteous in his righteousness. They were, they were beautiful and sinless. They hadn't been stained or, or defiled in any way. Once that defilement happens, it can't be undefiled. You understand? So you're talking to somebody and, and, and you say, well, you know, you're a liar. If you don't stop lying, you're going to go to hell. The reality is they could stop lying. They could stop every single sin from now till the day that they die in this life and they will go to hell because the righteousness that's lost in the first sin can't be gained back over however much time of no sin. You're defiled, you're stained, your garment is, is filthy before God if you ever just did one and then you didn't do any of the rest of your life. They can't save themselves by being good. It's too late for that. Once you weren't good once, your goodness is gone. That's why we need a savior. That's why somebody had to come. See, Keith, I need you again. Thanks. We'll flip this one over. I draw you one more picture. Is God merciful? Is he just? Okay. Okay. That's all right. Okay. So, so you have... These two things, mercy and justice. Does diametrically opposed, does that, to be diametrically opposed is like east and west. They can't find each other. If you go around the globe, they're always the diameter of a sphere. They're, they're away from each other. They can't ever find each other. That's what mercy and justice are. If I murder somebody, and I'm brought before a judge. And the judge says, you know what? I'm a merciful guy. I'm just waiving all the charges. What happened? 
Mercy happened. But justice was denied because you can't have mercy and justice together. They can't coexist. They're diametrically opposed from one another. So in the same sense, I go in front of that judge and he says, an eye for an eye, baby. You took a life, your sentence is death. Justice is served, but mercy is not because they can't coexist. It's impossible. So then how does God, who's merciful, and God who must require justice, ever bring about the two together? It requires a third party. Someplace else to put justice so that mercy can be given where it's not deserved. So in the case of I murdered somebody, God says, if I meet the terms of the covenant, right, he will give Pat mercy. Therefore, justice must be served. How are we going to serve justice? Jesus. The penalty for my murder was put on him. Then I told a lie. Oh, here we go again. Pat, Jesus. The only way that mercy can be achieved is if justice is satisfied. It can't be done in a person because they're diametrically opposed. So what happened on the cross is that justice was satisfied so that for those who would choose Jesus as Lord and Savior over their lives could receive mercy and be reconciled back to God. Make sense? This is the big deal of the cross right here. That's it, right there. That that mercy, God so wanted to have relationship with his creation, but justice demanded that something else be done, and that's Jesus, the perfect and sacrificial lamb of God. All right, thank you, Keith. So when we're talking to these people, person, group, however that finds its way, the conversation is that you, you have to understand that you're guilty, that, that God is so perfect and so holy and so righteous and so just that sinful mankind has given up its opportunity to be with him. And without a savior, there is no opportunity. The gospel is that he sent Jesus to be that opportunity that we might have reconciliation with him and and that doesn't even begin to speak to the the wrath of god poured out for the sin of mankind that would be hell or eternally the lake of fire for those who don't choose jesus that's the outcome but remember convert right somebody who's born again stop is not the objective he never called us to make converts he never called us to be converts the objective is disciple Think of disciple like this. Jesus gave everything for us. Jesus expects everything from us. I'll demonstrate that to you in scripture next week or the following week. Ultimately, it's in a beautiful, committed love relationship. Just like you would see if you can imagine a perfect marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up. Wives, be subject to your husband as to the Lord. It's the same picture. It's, it's nasty if it's legal. The only way you can perceive it is legal. But it's awesome if you can perceive it in sacrificial love. Okay, so then what does it mean to be saved? It's interesting. Um, we had a group together, and I asked the question, and in my mind there was only one answer. The question was, why did you get saved? 
And my answer was, I don't want to go to hell. Somebody convinced me that there was a heaven and there was a hell. My destination was hell. They gave me some sense for what that was, some sense to av- how to avoid it. And it was like, it's an easy question to answer. Who would want to go to hell? Everybody would get saved so they don't have to go to hell. I mean, I didn't care how good heaven was. I just didn't want hell. I- I'm absolutely, totally honest with you. We started asking the question and nobody answers it that way. One guy was an alcoholic, taking drugs, couldn't get his life right. I needed somebody to save me from myself. Like, dang, I never thought of that. But that's huge. I was a, well, nobody said this. <laughs> I was a horrible, mean, nasty husband. I needed something because I couldn't stop and be a good husband. I said I would be like this, but I was being like this. It's so much broader. I think that's where you get sozo. That's where if you look in your Bible in the New Testament and you see saved, sometimes healed, the Greek word behind it is sozo. It implies so much more than just, not that it's a just, but just that I've become eternally okay with God, that Jesus purchased for us Jehovah Rapha, is that right? Healer, right? All that stuff. The fullness, the peace of the, the perfect shalom of heaven is purchased for us to have now, not just then. Salvation. Ultimately, the conversation, the context of the conversation I'm going to share with you is primarily reconciled to God unto eternal relationship, out of hell into heaven. But it's more than that. And there's words that you see in the Bible and you hear hear people use that we want to make sure we understand. Salvation, saved. Redemption, redeemed. Regeneration, born again, reconciled. The implication is the same for all those words that you've come from a lost relationship with God, with an eternity that's away from him, ultimately in the lake of fire, to a born-again, redeemed, reconciled, saved relationship with God whose eternity is in the fullness of his glory. Okay. So then the, the next thing to talk about is what actually happens when a person gets saved? We, yeah, we can, we can have a conversation with somebody because we understand the, the terms of the covenant, but they need to understand that something big happens when you get saved. So the first thing, well, maybe not the first thing. Here's what happens. When you are saved, what it means to be saved is that you have become reconciled eternally to God, brought back, reconciled to God. You've had your sins forgiven and you are righteous before God, Right? Remember, we talked to them already about God and his relationship with mankind and how man has separated himself from God through sin because God is perfect and holy and righteous. And I don't totally understand it, but you know, he, he won't have sin in his presence. That, that, that Anybody that's going to be in his place has got to be as righteous and holy as he is. And you actually became that in Christ Jesus at the moment that you got saved. What happened? That nasty sin garment that you had was taken away from you. Really, you died. You, dis, you, you ceased to exist, and you were given the righteousness of Christ himself before God. Salvation is not a process. Salvation is an instant. It, it's like a light switch going on and off. Turn the lights off, please, just the big ones. Dead in your sin. Eternally separated from God. Turn the lights on. Still, (laughs) okay, fluorescence lights, it's a little bit of a process. With incandescent lights, it's instant. The point is, at 
at the moment when you have sincerely met the terms of the covenant in your heart, you're saved. It can be a process up to that point. Understanding, getting to the place. I mean, I've heard of pastors who've been pastors for like 20 years getting saved. They could explain it. They could teach it. They, to whatever they could do in their own power, they could live it. But they themselves confessing that they actually never were born again until some point in time. The process to get there, the time to get there can be a process of understanding. When, when I came to know Jesus, I had 10,000 questions because I thought it was all a bunch of nonsense, silliness. So I had to ask questions and ask, who is this God? How do you know there's a God? I've never met this God. How is he real? Someone had to explain that to me to get to the point in the process of actually being saved. It's an instant in time. Bam, just like that. Okay. What happens then in that very moment, your sin that is separated from you, you from God, has been credited, you know, in the picture, has been credited to Jesus' account. Your sin, he took it. His righteousness, you got it. In that instant, your sins are gone. You are righteous before God in Christ Jesus. He's paid for those sins already. The sad thing is he's paid for everybody's sins. But most are going to walk down the wide path, and then they're going to pay for them again in their eternity, where Jesus has already taken it and given them the opportunity to not have to do that. Your sin is credited to his account. His righteousness is imputed to you. You're born again in that moment, a new creature in Christ. You might say, well, I didn't feel that new. Matter of fact, a lot of the stuff that didn't look like Jesus still seems to be part of me. It's not part of you. It's part of a nature that's gone. And and I don't totally understand the old man and how he's dead, but he don't seem to want to, forgive my English, he doesn't seem to want to act dead. You know, he seems to want to influence me. I don't have a total understanding, but I do know this. I'm a new creature in Christ because unless that I'm born again, I can't see the kingdom of heaven. That's what the scriptures teach. So at that instant of salvation, you literally have died and been risen in Christ Jesus, a new creature in Christ. Old things have gone, new things have come. That's why it's so important when the devil gets in your head and he wants to remind you of just how horrible you used to be, every bad thing you did. You can't swim in that pool anymore because that's not who you are. Yes, even if you keep doing some of that stuff, you can't identify that with you. You can identify that with the devil. You can identify that with your old man, but you have to see yourself as a new creature in Christ. Otherwise, he will keep you down from everything that Jesus has purchased for us. At that moment of salvation, you literally become a temple of God. And Holy Spirit, God himself, moves into the temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, therefore glorify God in your body. See, he moved in. Your body is a temple of God. Think about that for just a minute. Remember in Israel, in the the Old Testament covenant with Israel, they, they had to have a tabernacle, right? 
God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle. It had to meet all these conditions. And then they built this temple, and, and, and he had this design for the temple. God dwelt behind this big, big, thick curtain. Nobody could go into the most holy place or they would die, except for one time a year, the high priest who was chosen by God could go in there and offer up offerings for his own sin and then for the sin of Israel. But because he wasn't perfect and whatever lamb he brought in there wasn't perfect, it had to be done again and again and again. But our high priest is Jesus, spotless, perfect Jesus. He doesn't have to make any offering for his own sin because he doesn't have any. And then he offered himself as the Lamb of God, perfect and spotless. The offering was absolutely sufficient now and forever. That's why there is no need. If you think, oh, I did something wrong, I have to do penance or something. No, you have to repent. That's it. Cut it out. There is no offering to be made for your sin. That's why whenever things are going wrong and you think, oh, God's punishing you. No, he's not punishing you. Why? Because justice, punishment was poured out on Jesus. He may be chastening you. He may be disciplining you. He may be shaping and molding you so that from glory to glory, all things to good unto Christ-likeness, because that's the goal, to be like Jesus. He's not punishing us. All that went to Jesus. And then ultimately your eternal destination is changed from hell to heaven. Now there's people that would disagree with me on this one, but I think I can demonstrate it pretty strongly in the scriptures, assuming that you don't relinquish your salvation. Your eternity, right? Salvation is spoken of as real. Like if if the rapture happened right now or... or and I was some crazy drive-by gunman shot a bullet through my head and I died, I'd go to heaven because I'm saved. But Paul describes it also as the hope of salvation. It can't be a hope if it's fully realized now, but it is fully realized now. So what's the difference? The difference is you have to stay there saved, right? He says, to him who endures will be saved. To him who perseveres to the end will be saved. So, so there's a function of am I saved? Yes. Will I be saved? Yes. The, the, the difference is that we stay saved. That's a whole other teaching. It's not, honestly, it's, it's hardly anything even worth arguing about if we understand from a love relationship that we serve the Lord. There's no issue of losing your salvation. You didn't get saved by not doing bad things, right? You don't lose your salvation because you start doing bad things. You got saved because you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you offered to your life to him as Lord and you've placed your trust in him by faith as Savior that his work on the cross satisfied everything that was required. Okay, I'm, honestly, I'm almost done. I don't know what that means, but I'm almost done at least in my notes. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. We're going to start now the conversation about how does a person actually procure salvation. Apostle Paul, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. You are saved by grace through faith. God does grace, really, quite frankly, and then grace does faith, right? So our faith is still a function of his grace, but it's by our faith 
through his grace that we're saved, that we have eternal relationship, that we're reconciled back to him, that we're born again, redeemed. That particular grace, and I can't say that I, with confidence, that I, that I have a, a complete confidence in my understanding of the breadth of grace. But in this context, let me try to describe grace. That salvation is offered to us at all is grace. Do you understand that, that God created us, God knew before the foundations of the world that we would sin and separate ourselves from him, that if relationship with him was to ever happen again, that something would have to be done, and he did it, but in, he was in no way obligated to do it. Somebody's driveway needs shoveled, and they can't shovel it. I'll go shovel it. I don't have to shovel it. It's by grace. I just choose to do it. Shovel the driveway for them. God is not in any way obligated to offer us his son, but he does by grace. It's a gracious thing that he does. The ability even to discern salvation, the conversation about getting saved, and to actually respond to it is grace. Does that make sense? Let me read you some scriptures. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. Speaking of God now, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Who did it? He did it. Who be, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are in Christ Jesus, if in fact we're in Christ Jesus, because of his doing, not of our own. Then 1 Corinthians 2.14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The carnal mind, the person who's not born again, who's not a temple of God, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, spiritual matters to them are foolishness. All my life, it was nonsense. It made no sense to me at all. Spiritual things are spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. The ultimate spiritual matter is salvation. It's coming to know God in a saving way. If the carnal mind can't conceive of spiritual matters, how does anybody get saved? Grace. What's grace? It's anointing in this context. First, or it's not first John, but John 6, 44, Jesus speaking, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the answer to how the carnal mind can perceive a spiritual matter. It's grace. It's anointing. So when you're having a conversation, there's a guy who used to go to the church, and I don't know, he must have been more of a debater than me. He loved to argue with people. He'd be in truck stops, and he'd try to share Jesus, and somebody would argue. And he would argue with them, and he would argue with them, and they would argue back. And I said, just please stop doing that. When you argue with somebody about Jesus, you're not drawing them closer. You're, you're teaching them to drive their heels into the ground and resist. The problem that he was experiencing is they weren't responding to the grace. Or maybe at that moment the grace wasn't there because it's a spiritual matter. You're trying to have a spiritual conversation with a carnal mind and you're expecting them to understand without grace it can't happen. It's nonsense. So if you're sharing the Lord and somebody wants to argue with you, just stop. Graciously, kindly, just stop. Don't have that conversation. It's not fruitful at all. 
because grace isn't present or maybe grace is being resisted to the point that they, they just cannot discern the spiritual matter that you're offering to them. I'll stop there today. Let me just review quickly. And you're welcome to my notes, by the way. Anybody that wants, like, come on, how can I remember all that? You, you can have my notes, and you can look at them, and, and, and uh, you could call me and ask me questions. Each other, you could ask questions. The point is, when we share God with somebody, it has to be a bigger conversation than if you want to go to heaven, you just agree to these two things, let's say a prayer, and praise God you're born again. They might actually get born again, but the foundation that's been established under them is weak. They need to understand who God is. They need to understand his relationship to mankind. They need to understand what a gracious and sacrificial thing he did so that we could be reconciled from what we did, that we're the reason that reconciliation needs to happen, not God. And whether we understand that we rebelled against him or we don't, we did rebel against him. And if a person says, well, I'm sorry, I just can't apologize for something that I don't feel like, well, then they can't get saved. Not that moment, because they don't recognize themselves as a sinner. They don't see themselves as having transgressed God to the place where he could give them his forgiveness. If you read the scriptures, it's interesting about forgiveness. One of the foundational things we'll talk about at some point in the future is forgiveness. But when Jesus talks about, you know, with Peter, well, how many times I got to forgive this guy? If he comes to you 70 times, seven times and repents, forgive him. There was a condition in there called repents, right? Well, what if he just comes and says, forgive me? Are, are, are you repentive? Are you going to keep punching me in the face every time I see you? I think I'm probably going to keep punching you. I don't think I'm going to forgive you just yet. There was a condition on forgiveness, right? The person who wants to receive God's gift of salvation has to recognize that they need it. So just basic foundational stuff like that. When we have the conversation, what's your perception of God? What's your perception of your relationship with him? What's your perception of why we need to have this discussion? Just little stuff like that so we can share the bigness of the gospel so that the foundation that starts to get laid under their salvation is going to... Now, you could argue, hey, you know, they got the Holy Spirit. What more do they need? I don't know, but we're told to make disciples, that they don't just instantly become disciples and start to love their neighbors as themselves and and repent from their sins and, and be transformed from glory to glory. We have a role to play in that. We might as well play it from the way it's taught to us. Amen? Amen. Okay, thank you guys. I honestly did not think we would be this long today. So those of you that look after children, whether you can hear me or not, we bless you in Jesus' name. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you've given us Jesus, that you've given us your word, that you've, you've showed us the truth. Help us to then receive this truth. And Lord, help us to be passionate to know that you expect us to go out and do for others what's been done for us. I ask a blessing. Everybody get home safe today. Be nice and warm. Grow in Jesus. In his name, amen.